0: Good, well, uh, great to be with you guys. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Go to Luke chapter 5. Uh, we are in the Gospel of Luke. That's the Gospel that we have been walking through uh, as a faith family, if you're uh, new, visiting, just, just really glad that you're here with us. We just love to do uh, one very simple yet profound thing, and that is worship Jesus. And uh, we worship Jesus because he deserves it, he demands it, and because of all that he is to us. And so we do that uh, a number of ways, but three kind of main ways we do that is we worship Jesus by singing songs that talk about who he is, what he's done, namely in his personal work. We worship Jesus by uh, studying the scriptures, by seeing how he reveals himself, not how we have our cute ideas of what he might look like or should look like, but what he says about himself, how he says he's revealed so that we can walk rightly in life and joy and fullness of all that he is. And so we also do uh, worship, give worship to Jesus by giving generously because he gave most generously in himself. And we give in the small black box in the back. I have to keep saying it's not the trash can to the right on the floor, it's the black box. We have found uh, offering in there. So uh, make sure if you give that it actually physically goes in the box. Uh, Otherwise, the custodial staff will have a great uh, if it's a blank check, so uh, which I hope you're not writing. So anyways, uh, I'm going to stop. Let's pray. Let's, let's, let's pray again to, to uh, refocus our minds, then we'll, we'll dive into Luke chapter 5. God, thank you that you're a, a good God, a kind God, a gracious God, a compassionate God that is unrelenting in grace. God, thank you that we have been able to just marvel and stare at uh, the person and life and teachings of Jesus. God, thank you for what you're doing through us looking at your inspired word Thank you for the lives that you are transforming. Thank you for the marriages that you are redeeming. Thank you for uh, people who are walking uh, in sin, in death, now walking in newness of life, in forgiveness of sin, having your Holy Spirit indwelling in them. God, we pray that you continue to do many things through your church, God, not just here, but around the state, around this nation, around this world. God, would you use faithful pastors this morning who are preaching the good news of Jesus Pray you give them courage, give them joy, that it would transform all of them who hear. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Uh, just real quick, if you don't have a Bible, we have plenty in the back. You're welcome to grab one, take one. If you don't know one, uh, that's our gift to you. We want to make sure that uh, anyone who attends here is able to have a Bible. Uh, and never lets anything limit that. So Luke chapter 5, here's what uh, I want to do in case you're dropping in. I always like to kind of give you guys a, a summary or kind of a lead into where we are currently in our study. And so uh, what's basically been happening is you see the people of God, the nation of Israel, there are people who have been in and out of exile. They've had hills, valleys, lows, highs. And they are just wanting so badly for the darkness they feel like they sit under to break with light. That's why back in chapter 1, you're going to see that, that Zechariah in this prophecy, he gives. He says, hey, we're waiting for the sunlight to come, the sunlight to break. And that's going to be Jesus. That's going to be the Messiah. That's going to be one that's going to come. He's going to make all that went wrong right. Now, what we're seeing consistently is that the people of Israel are a bit mistaken on why the Messiah came. He didn't just to come to free them from Roman oppressive government. He didn't come just to kind of change their likes and dislikes. He came to actually forgive sin and make new what went wrong back in Genesis 3. And so as Jesus is going about his ministry, as he's preaching, teaching, healing, we see that there's a lot of healing going on. And the reason that is significant is because Luke is the writer. Luke is a guy who is a physician by trade, a doctor by trade. He is uh, keenly aware of illness and what that looks like. So he is uh, intrigued by that, so he's writing to this guy, Theophilus, who is a Roman official who is skeptical of the things of Christianity and the life and teachings of Jesus, and he wants him to be certain of those things. He wants him to know that you can not only be certain of the life and teachings of Jesus, but when you understand them, they shouldn't just inform you, they should transform you. And so we've been praying throughout this study that God would transform us deeply, Okay, we don't be a people that just come in the room and hear a lot of information, walk out with greater theological heads. Okay, that just makes you kind of arrogant and dumb, actually. So we really want you to be grace-filled, humble, and renewed and transformed by hearing these truths and going, okay, what does that mean for me? Where does it invade the spaces that need to be invaded in my life? And so what we're seeing is as Jesus teaches, it's starting to invade your personal space. It's no longer this guy that you can kind of put at arm's length. He's saying things and revealing things that invade those dark places that we live in. right? Namely the sin, the idolatry, all of the ways that we love to worship everything outside of him. So he's graciously exposing that. And one other thing we're going to consistently continue to say, especially this morning, is how as he goes about doing his ministry... What's ironic is the really morally good people, the religious elite, those that kind of have all the prayers and fasting, and they give and they do all of their alms, and they they just live the Christian life well. Okay, and then they boast about it, just want everyone to see how they live. They, They grew to varsity somehow. Everyone else is JV. They look down on JV, judge everybody else. God is going to consistently say, you're far from me. Okay, and the the lowly, the outcast, the person who's keenly aware of their need of grace and mercy, the one who understands his desperate need for forgiveness is going to say, you're close to me. You're right near my heart. Right? We're we're seeing this, right, with with the tax collector and with the paralytic and with the leper. Right? We come to Jesus in our sin of leprosy. We come to Jesus crippled in our sin. and, And he says, welcome, come out into the light. There's forgiveness for you. There's mercy for you. There's grace for you. And so here we pick up in this scene is what you're going to see Jesus roll out this morning is something very interesting, okay? And he's basically going to back up his claim in Luke chapter 4 when he preached that sermon to the religious people in the synagogue, right? Where he says, hey, I'm here, why? Namely to deliver the spiritually blind, the spiritually poor, the spiritually bankrupt, spiritually oppressed, spiritually captive people held prisoner by sin, the irony was we saw was that it was all the religious people listening to that and they thought it was for everybody else. It's so going, no, you're, you're held captive by the law. Like you think all this good stuff earns you righteousness. No, you're spiritually blind. You're spiritually bankrupt. You can't barter with God. You can't buy grace. He has to give it to you freely. And so we're, we're seeing him kind of expose all this. And as he rolls this out, here is what he's going to show us this morning. Is this gospel, this idea of righteousness being given, doesn't mingle With other belief systems you can't add to it dilute it mix it up it's solely by itself it stands totally by itself the gospel is one thing it's not mixed with all these other different belief systems so where we pick up this morning jesus left peter's home where he healed the paralytic physically and spiritually. Remember, last week he saw Levi along the road. He's walking, sees his tax collector, scum of humanity, traitor to his own people, criminal, steals from people, extorts the Jews by joining the Gentile system of uh, tax collecting. And what does Jesus do? Jesus sees the repentance in his heart, calls him to, to follow him. He leaves Follows him. Then he throws a house party for Jesus. And he's with tax collectors and sinners because he's the only people that Levi knows. Okay? He didn't know any church people. He only knew tax collectors and sinners. So he invites them all to the party with Jesus. And what are the Pharisees and scribes doing? They're all peering in the window judging and criticizing while Jesus is loving and befriending. And so here as he is having this conversation probably right outside the house. They were questioning the disciples. And uh, this is what they ask Jesus as Jesus overhears and eavesdrops on their babble. This is what he, they say to him, verse 33. And they said to Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Okay. That statement's loaded okay, with, with meaning. We could spend all morning just talking about this. But let me just give us um, a few things to see and notice in here that will take us into Jesus' line of thought. Here's what you've got to understand. They're not only now frustrated at Jesus because he hangs out with sinners... Okay, because remember, they thought sin was something that gets on you, it's caught, right? Like leprosy or deformity or disease. If you're around them, then you, then you can get unclean. Okay, so he's saying here hey, not only does he hang out with, with unclean people, but why don't you guys do what holy people do? Why aren't you fasting? Okay, why aren't you looking religious? Why aren't you looking well? Why aren't you looking righteous? Okay, and he's, he's rolling this out because there's a number of things you've got to understand with the Pharisaic system. One is that if Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, if he's claiming to have authority to forgive sins, then why is he not following their religion? Why is he not doing everything they're doing? So the first day system would say, you got to fast and give prayers on Monday and Thursday. And, and here's what you got to understand. Everything that the religious elite did, they didn't do as a motivation to please God. They wanted to be seen. Okay, this is why you can go consistently to Matthew. If you go to the book of Matthew where he gives his profound Sermon on the Mount, here's what you're going to see. In the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to attack and aggressively go after the religious people that say this. Hey, you know when you give? You know when you give your offerings? Why when you go give do you sound a trumpet? Right? I mean, can you imagine that? Right? Every time you went to the black box, dropped your check and you pulled out a ram horn, you're like, hey, everybody, hey, I'm, I'm giving. Could you imagine that? Every time you went online to, like, give something, you wrote an email to the whole church. Hey, guys, by the way, I just put my tithe. I mean, that's what they were doing, right? I mean, I mean he goes on. He says, hey, w- w- when you go pray, hey, don't go on the streets and just pray so everybody hears your prayers like the hypocrites do. Go in secret. Why? Because they would go out on Monday and Thursday and just have their list of prayers and just start praying so that everybody would see them and say, look how holy they are. Look how righteous they are. Look at how they pray, and Jesus is going, man, no, no. I'm trying to reveal the heart. This, there's a self-righteous heart, there's a right heart with Jesus, and it's about you and God. It's not about how people see you. It's not about you growing your level of spirituality so you can look down on other people. It's about intimacy, it's about growth, it's about you walking right with him, and he's defining a right heart versus a self-righteous heart. And then Jesus will continue to say at the end, he'll, he'll, he'll address fasting in Matthew 5. And he'll say, hey, when you go out, during your fasting times? Why do you dress shabby, you don't comb your hair, you look like just a disheveled human being who's just sad and soppy, and you go around going, I'm fasting today. That's what they would do. And Jesus goes, hey, clean yourself up. Like it's between you and God. It's not about you doing anything morally good. Remember, the the Pharisees and scribes are all about being moral, they're not about being holy. Jesus is about making sinners holy. Okay, so it doesn't matter if you increase in morality, you need holiness, you don't need morality. Okay, and that's why the gospel is also unique in that it has nothing to do with you pulling yourself up, working really hard, doing all you can do to be holy or be righteous. Jesus alone makes you that. We're going to see him explain that even more. And so we're seeing these guys attack Jesus because they're so self-righteous. Now, why do they mention John? You wonder that when you're reading it? Or if you read this, I read that. Go, Why did they mention John the Baptist? Well, if you remember in Luke chapter 3, what does John the Baptist do? John the Baptist prepares the way of the Messiah, right? He prepares the way for Jesus. He goes, hey, he's preaching a repentance for forgiveness of sins. And then what happens? As he's doing that, people start following John. Their allegiance starts to go to John. They're going, is is this guy the Messiah? Is this the guy who we're supposed to have allegiance to? And then you get to Luke chapter 3 where the baptism of Jesus comes. And what happens when he gets baptized, when, when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus what is happening there's a shift going to where he's going that's the Christ not me like don't follow me what's the problem not everybody witnessed that not everybody saw that So there's still people thinking John the Baptist is kind of our allegiance it hasn't shifted to Jesus so they're still doing religious moral activity according to the pharisaic system thinking they're following John and not Jesus so the religious leaders are going okay well John's disciples do all this we do all this why don't yours do this why don't yours fast and pray? And the last thing you got to understand before we get into the meat of this is in the Old Testament, you know there's only one type of fasting commanded. A lot of you are familiar, if you're familiar with Jewish roots, Yom Kippur, right? Day of Atonement. What do you do? You take a dark look into your soul, a hard look into your sin, you examine, you refrain from food, and you offer sacrifice. It was a time of sadness, grieving. Mourning. Here's what you're going to also consistently see in the Old Testament. Fasting tied to sadness. This is why that, this is really important to understand. And that if you think about it, it's natural for us. Because what happens is when you're sad, when you're grieving, you lose your appetite. So what do you got to do? You got to pray. Okay, this happens when I go into hospital visits, right? I met with some of you. And what happens? Do I go in there going, hey, want to go get a steak downstairs? No. You've lost your appetite. What do we do? We pray. We beg God for comfort. We beg God to intervene. We beg God to hear us, right? And so here is what we're seeing. The Pharisees are going, why are you eating and drinking? Why are you happy? You should be grieving because we're all fasting. So why are you busy doing this? Don't you know that grieving and fasting go together? And here's what Jesus answers. This is profound. Verse 34, Jesus says to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Jesus' answer is amazing. Okay? He's like that guy that that always says to you, Hey, can I answer your question with another question? You know what I mean? He does that all the time. You just get annoyed with those people. You know, you're like so frustrated because they're so good. That's why Jesus loves to ask questions. He's going, Hey, do you ever invite someone to a wedding and go, Hey, man, look at this big cocktail party. Not for you, gotta fast. No. What are weddings for? Celebration. Joy. Right? You, don't, you don't fast at a wedding, you feast at a wedding, right? Okay, so what's, what's Jesus doing here? I think Jesus is ultimately talking about himself. He's saying, I'm here. Right? The, the bride's here with his bridegroom. Why would there be sadness? Why would there not be joy? This isn't a time to, to fast and be sad and, and mourn. This is a time to be happy and joyful because I, I came what? To forgive sin. I came to give life. I came to bring joy to the world. And so they they don't understand it at all. The religious leaders don't understand it at all. And they've been waiting for the Messiah. They've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And he's finally here. what happens? They're totally spiritually blind to it. Luke chapter 4. You don't even see that it's me. You don't even see that I'm the reason that you should be overjoyed. And Jesus reveals something here that's never been mentioned before in the scriptures. What is it? The bridegroom. He's revealing something. And Paul's going to unpack this later in his letters, and the, the scriptures will ultimately lead it to the end where the bridegroom is with the bride of Christ and his church, and we'll be in the great bridal city, the New Jerusalem, together. But this idea of the bridegroom has never been issued in scripture yet, and they're seeing it, they're hearing of it, and Jesus is very simply engaging them on how they view spirituality. That's all he's doing. And he's showing them how blind they are, and he's showing them how you've been so engrossed in your self-righteous living that you can't see your own bankruptcy before God, and that this is a time of joyous celebration, not mourning and sadness. And look at what he keeps saying in verse 35. He, he clarifies this even more. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, meaning his disciples, and then they will fast in those days. What's Jesus doing? He's alluding to his future death on a cross. Going, hey, listen, right now while I'm here presently, there's joy, there's celebration, but there's going to be a violent interruption where I'm taken by the Father, hung on a cross for the sins of humanity. The full wrath of God will be poured out for the sins of mankind. The righteousness of God will be credited to sinners. Forgiveness of God will be given to sinners, and he will take all of their sin. And listen, in the time that I get taken to the cross before my glorious re-entry after the resurrection, there will be fasting then. There will be mourning and grieving. What do the disciples do? They're thrilled. What happens when Jesus leaves and goes to a cross? There is grieving. They're deeply mourning. And what happens when he re enters the scene after his resurrection? There's joy and celebration. He's just, he's just revealing to the religious people that you just don't get it. You don't get who I am, you don't understand why I came. You're so consumed with what you do. You're so consumed with how you look. You're so obsessed with worshiping yourself and being your own God and having your own authority that you don't see that I'm God and I have my own authority and that's who I call to myself. He flips the whole thing on its head. I was thinking about Philippians 4. It's not on the screen, but I thought I started seeing other places in Scripture where joy is connected to the resurrection and the reentry of Jesus. That that's what causes us joy. I thought about Philippians 4. What does Paul say there? He actually roots his basis for rejoicing in the return of Christ. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Why? The Lord is at hand. He's near. Not just near in a literal sense with indwelling us and taking up residency in the Holy, as the Holy Spirit. He, he's, he's near in a, in a future sense. He's returning. So, so knowing that reality shapes our joy today. Right? I mean, we're not a people that knows this is all there is. We, we know when the, when the government makes laws and appeals to things, we know well, well, all will ultimately be made right. Like, we don't have to worry about that. Like, there's a king on his throne who's still sitting there. He hasn't forgotten. He is not making mistakes. He, this, the clouds aren't, you know, hazing his vision a little bit to see down, downstairs at what's happening in life and in the world. He's in full sovereign control of all things. And knowing that gives us joy. So we can rejoice because he is near just like the disciples were deeply in joy because he was with them. <laughs> the bridegroom was with them. Jesus was present. And every time he leaves, they grieve and they're sad. And every time he reenters the scene, they're joy filled. And the Pharisees don't get it, which is why Jesus does what he does best. He tells a story. Verse 36. And he told them a parable. He says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts on it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. So Jesus tells a story. He says, how insane would it be if you took a brand new shirt you bought, brand new piece of clothing... And you ripped a piece off of it to patch a hole in an old piece of clothing. It would ruin the new one and it wouldn't match the old one. Right? Make common sense. Right? He also gives an allusion to these wineskins. Right? They used to ferment wine and they would pour it in these wineskins. What happened is after it was used, after it fermented over its period of time, they would go really dry and cracked and brittle. And so you'd only use it once. So he's going, why would you take new wine and use an old wineskin that's dried out and pour it in it? When wine ferments, gas expands, and it grows, it would just bust the old wineskin. You use a new wineskin every time you ferment wine. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, you can't add to, mix, and mingle the gospel of grace through faith Righteousness given by something else with anything else. You can't patch anything into the gospel. They loved their old way of living. They loved their self-righteous living. They loved people seeing what they did as good and praising them and them getting glory. You can't take the gospel and pour it into an old cracked system of self-righteous works. It doesn't work that way. It's new. Like this is a new covenant. Covenant. This is a glorious message to sinners in need of grace. You realize all the righteous works are filthy rags, according to His glorious nature and infinite perfections that we desperately need a righteousness given by someone else. Which is why He's going to say later in verse thirty-nine, "Man, you're just like those people that they don't want to drink anything new; you just love the old ways." You you don't understand that this gospel is good news. You just want how it's always, how you think it's always been, which is a system of law, a system of works, which is never how God ever intended it. They don't realize that every single sacrifice and piece of blood that was shed, and penance and repayment and sacrifice was all to point to Jesus. Who would be the one sacrifice that we would love and worship and agree with and, and serve? And so. He's showing here that you can't add anything to Jesus. Now, why is this so important to get? We live in a day where we just exalt diversity of belief. We exalt tolerance of religion. We exalt universalism that basically says, hey, we all kind of end up at the same point, right? We love that. But here's the thing if you add anything, To the gospel of Jesus Christ, the pure, unadulterated gospel of righteousness given by faith alone, what does it do? It renders it totally void. Like anything that you add to it, you can't take an infinitely glorious, valuable Jesus and add anything to an infinitely valuable thing or deity. He's the totality of all that is good, of all that is right, of all that is righteous. Paul says a great Colossians one. Look at Colossians one verse sixteen. He, he he agrees with what Jesus is saying. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. For he himself is before all things, and in him all things hold it together. Paul says there's something even higher than creation like even creation serves something and that something is Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ made creation so even creation serves that higher thing which is Jesus let's let's go back here's what we do we we subconsciously or consciously add to the infinitely valuable Jesus right and and so here's what we do we say well Being a faithful follower of Jesus isn't really all that there is. I need to add self-esteem to it. I need to add people loving me, liking me. I need to add greater wealth. I need to add success. I need to add a promotion. I need to add a spouse. I need to just keep inserting, right? So it's Jesus plus something else that makes him infinitely valuable. Think about how insane that is. It's Jesus that makes him infinitely valuable. And my fear is as soon as we believe this, and you know what Jesus becomes to you? He just becomes to you very simply just a way to get to heaven. That's all he becomes to you. And that's what we don't want because, yes, is Jesus concerned with taking care of our sin issue? Yeah. I mean, does he appease the wrath of God towards sin? Yeah. Does he, does he take our guilt and our shame and our condemnation and erase it and remove it? Yes. But, but what about like Monday to Sunday in the daily spaces you live in? Is, I mean, is he sufficient for that? What about the hatred that boils in your heart regularly when someone does something that just bothers you? What about that, that depression you feel rising up when you either have a broken Uh, thing that happens in a relationship or a family? What happens when your day doesn't go right or you don't get what you want? Is Jesus just a busboy or a commodity that you add or is he fully all things to you? What is he, right? I mean, who is the infinitely valuable Jesus? And this is what Jesus is getting at in his mini-sermon to the scribes and Pharisees. So I want us just to see right here very clearly in Colossians. What What does he show? He slams the door on our wanting to add to the centerpiece of the gospel of grace. Look at how many times he says all things. You know what all things is? All things. I mean, every arena, every topic, every subject under the created heavens. He says, all things in heaven and on earth were created by him. All things have been created through him and for who? Him. He himself is before all things. He's preeminent, Right? In him, all things hold together. Not some of the things in your life, not just a few of the DNA strands or molecules. Every last living organism that exists in the created realm. Galaxies you can't even see are held together by him. Jesus does this. this. Jesus sustains us. Through God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things. So all things were created for him, by him. So why does anything exist for Jesus? What is this test, friends? The goal of our hearts is he what you're after is he ultimate or is he in addition are you trying to patch him into old garments Are you trying to put him into an old wineskin are you trying to take this system of what you really love and then say well i'd like to add jesus into this but i still want to hold on to this you can't do that jesus is exclusive jesus stands alone jesus doesn't mingle And this is what Jesus is saying in Luke. Nothing will or ever will need to be added to him. And let me just encourage you that is it, is it great to want your marriage to be godly and glorifying? Yes. Is it great that you want to be freed from an addiction? Yes, of course. But if your goal is a clean marriage or a freedom from a deficit or addiction that you have, you're always going to be consistently frustrated and you're just going to chase the wind because you're going to keep chasing something that will take you back into the cycle and the cul-de-sac of trying to modify and change the behavior that you do. Instead of running to the all-sufficient one who says, I clean up, I'm alone righteous, I'm fully in charge of all things, I'm fully sufficient for your every need, so you're always okay landing on the rock and refuge of the one whose gospel is true and pure and always satisfying and always sustaining and always good, and always gracious, and always level. This is why, let's go back to Luke, as we land the plane. Look, don't miss what Jesus says in verse 39. I mentioned it earlier. He says, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. They're just spiritually blind. (laughs) This is back to Luke 4. Guys, I said, you're going to see Luke 4 roll out the remainder of Luke. I came to rescue the spiritually blind, the spiritually poor, Jesus is actually there for them, and they can't see it. So he's there for those who will see their need, see their bankruptcy before God, their enslavement to sin, and say, come on out into the light. And you know who's coming out into the light? The deeply sinful people who are so keenly aware of their need for grace. Not the self-righteous churchgoers that just say, hey, I think I'm good because I do all of these things, and I've somehow modified my actions so much so that my external behavior looks really righteous, so that must be enough righteousness for me to be right with God, but That's not how you and God talk. (laughs) How do we talk with God based upon the mediator, which is Jesus, who intercedes for us, who became our righteousness for us? And so Jesus is very simply saying, you've been waiting for me, you've been waiting for me, you've been waiting for me, and here I am right in front of your face, and you don't want what I'm bringing. You love, you love the applause of man. You love people seeing you pray. You love people hearing about the ways that you give. You love all of these things. (laughs) And Jesus goes, you're far from me. You're far from me. Hey, I'm I'm inside this house party with tax collectors and sinners who actually realize they're, they're keenly aware of their need for grace and mercy. They realize how utterly bankrupt they are before a holy God. Levi, who was ripping people off, he gets it. And he gets that righteousness is given by one. Only one type of righteousness. And so he's basically saying you have no interest in the gospel. You have no interest in a new gospel that says righteousness is given to you, it's not earned. You just want the old wine. Now listen, as I was reading this, I identified myself right away with the Pharisee. Because as I was shaking my head in disapproval at them, going, what idiots... SMH, right? I As I was, I was just doing that. You know, I just realized what that meant like two weeks ago. Saw it all over social media, SMH. I'm like, what is that? It's so weird. Shut my heart? No. As I was seeing them talk about their self-righteousness, and I'm going, man, what's self-righteous? Legalist. Then God graciously reminded me that, that whether you're a legalist or just utterly licentious, do you realize that if you don't see your, your, your deep, Deep need for grace and mercy and a righteousness outside of your own. Do you, do you realize that you're sitting in the same seat as the Pharisees, regardless of which end you sit on? And we're saying, just like these Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus, I don't really like what you're bringing. I love how people see me. I don't want them to see, some, see something bigger and greater and higher. <laughs> I love to see a really righteous Mike Reed and a, a guy who pastors and who is a Christian and who, right? The list can go on. And you can just look at your own heart and find those things and let God graciously reveal those things. So maybe, maybe some of us in this morning just find ourselves being lured back to old wineskins, old garments in life. Maybe Jesus is no longer your plea for righteousness. I don't know where that is. Isn't it interesting how much we love Jesus immediately when we trust him? Man, the grace is amazing. The mercy is great. And all of a sudden we step into the church. We start doing things and giving a little and sacrificing and whatever. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden you, you go on JV. From, from JV to varsity, and all of a sudden, everyone else in the church is JV. Well, how'd that happen? And when did that happen? And when The only reason you're on any sports team at all is because of Jesus. Like, he grafted you on one team, which is his bride. And the only way you're selected is not based on anything you do, or that you're cute, or you get a good pick, or you really did well, or he was kind of looking down through the heavens going, yeah, yeah, you know, he'd be a good servant. He's got a lot of talent. He just unconditionally says, you're mine. Why? Because of my son. Look at my son. Look at what he did in purchasing you and ransoming you. You did nothing. You didn't hang. You didn't shed your blood. Profound. Right? So maybe for some of us he's become just a commodity or a busboy to serve you and make much of you and show other people how good you are. Jesus doesn't do that for you. That's not why he came. You're actually, what, grafted into him. You're hidden in Christ. People see Christ. They don't see you. That's what people are to see. I mean, mean, Jesus will even say, hey, hey, do all these good works. Why? So they just glorify God. They don't glorify you. We want them to see heaven. Maybe you want to repent of places where you just want Jesus to correct some deficit in your life. And if he does that, then you'd be happy. And that's what Jesus is to you. I think here's where the the gospel and religion really veer away from one another, just just to end it. I was thinking about the scene; these two pictures of the house party and these ta- these Pharisees and scribes talking to Jesus is religion will consistently say, "Forgive your neighbor, fast a lot, say a lot of prayers, do good, and then you and God can talk with each other." Right, but, but the gospel of grace through faith is no; you come when you're weary, you come when you're heavy laden, you come when you're condemned in your sin, and then you and God talk. Why? Because grace is available for you. Mercy is available for you. Come when you're a leper, just engrossed, totally aware, so closely aware to how heinous your sin is before God, for he sees our sin as leprosy, as we see leprosy in general, right? Come come when you're crippled by sin, right? The paralytic who was lowered through the roof. There's forgiveness for you. Man, come as the tax collector realizes he uses his own business to extort other people and he loved growing in power and he loved just oppressing others. Man, you're aware of that? You realize you need redeeming and rescuing and renewal from that? Man, come to Jesus. That's what I want us to do this morning because, listen, if you're in here and you're just trying to change your behavior, that occurs when Jesus is an ultimate. When Jesus is ultimate, then the gospel works and occurs and transforms your life. Let's ask him to help us to do that this morning. I just want to give us a minute um, to just come to him, come as you are, come to him honestly, come to him transparently. I find it ironic, Jesus knows all things in our hearts anyways. John 2, I say repeatedly, will say that Jesus knows all the intentions and, and hearts and, and motivations of the heart and goals, so none of us can sit in this room and think we're hiding anything. Which is good news, <laughs> because all that's exposed to God longs and loves and takes delight in redeeming and forgiving and restoring so brother or sister if you're in this room and you are so keenly aware of your utter need for grace if you look back on this week and you see the spaces in your life that need fixing and realignment through the righteousness of Jesus just simply repent of that come as you are Maybe some of you have been attending church and not coming as you are, as you really are. You come as you want others to see you. You come boasting in what you do. You come doing things so that others might see you, not genuinely to serve God and His church. You come so that you might be able to tell someone of a good, righteous deed you did. Not so that God might be brought glories, but so that you might be brought glory. You come to talk about others so that others would look less and you would look higher. You come to judge and criticize, not to love and befriend. Let's just come as we are this morning. Let's let Christ graciously intervene in the spaces of our hearts that desperately need reworking through the gospel of grace. Thank you that your messages come to me when you're tired. Come to me when you're weary. Come to me when you're heavy laden. Come to me when the weight of all that I can't do to perform for you is enough. Thank you that none of it's enough. Thank you that you free me to serve and free me to live not under begrudging submission but joyful service. God, I pray for those in this room who are spiritually blind, poor, oppressed prisoners in sin, that they would see the glory of Christ, see His redeeming, forgiving work on the cross. That You might rescue and ransom them to yourself, that they might repent of their sin this morning. God, I pray for those of us, and I'm in this camp of loving the praise of man, loving what people see, Gotta be solely satisfied on what you do internally. For when when that heart is concerned with externals, you're deeply concerned with internals. Help us to deeply examine the, the crevices of our hearts that need realignment with Jesus. God, as we observe the Lord's Supper, may we take great joy and delight that this God who became man, whose body was broken and blood that was shed, is completely and utterly sufficient in all that we need. For life, godliness, joy, and fruitfulness. God, forgive us when we add to you. When we try to patch you into an old garment. When we try to put you and drop you into old wineskins. When we prefer the old wine and not the new, which is Jesus. Father, help us. We're needy. And thank you that you respond and answer. In Jesus' name, amen.